You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you every month from the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Alan Little, I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and this episode is called Northern Ireland Between Two Unions. A century after the partition of Ireland, Northern Ireland finds itself newly precarious. In 1998, after intense dialogue, the Good Friday Agreement formally marked an end to the troubles that have beset Northern Ireland for decades. But Brexit has unsettled that agreement and now threatens the peace that has been built upon it. As part of the withdrawal agreement it reached with the EU, the UK government accepted the Northern Ireland Protocol. This avoided the need for checks on goods passing over the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic by keeping Northern Ireland inside the EU single market, while the rest of the UK acquired the right to diverge from the rules of that market. But the quid pro quo is that in order to protect the integrity of the EU single market, checks are now made on goods passing across the Irish Sea between Britain and Northern Ireland, a new hard border running not only between the UK and the EU, but through the UK itself. That has not only created challenges for businesses, it has provoked a hostile response from unionists who see in it the Trojan horse of eventual Irish reunification. Among Irish nationalists who overwhelmingly welcomed the Good Friday Agreement and equally overwhelmingly opposed Brexit, talk of Irish unity is again a prominent part of the political discourse. For the next half hour, I'm joined by Katie Hayward, Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast, an internationally renowned expert on the Irish border, and by Jonathan Powell, who from 1997 to 2007 was Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Tony Blair and as such was a Chief Architect of the Good Friday Agreement. He's also internationally renowned in conflict resolution, and his book, Great Hatred, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, was published in 2009. Let's start by looking again at the Good Friday Agreement and the way in which Brexit has changed the equation. When we think of the Good Friday Agreement, we think of it as a bilateral pact between Britain and Ireland, primarily, in which the US envoy George Mitchell played a mediating role. But what role did the EU play in it, and how important was it to the success of the Good Friday Agreement, the achievement of it, that both the UK and Ireland were in the EU. And Jonathan Powell, since you were at the heart of government negotiating that deal, let's start with you. Thank you. Well, the EU didn't uh, play a role in terms of being a protagonist at the table in the conclusion of the Good Friday Agreement in the way that Bill Clinton was staying up all night and winging parties on all sides to make sure the agreement was reached. But the joint membership of the EU by both the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom was crucial to the basis of the Good Friday Agreement. The reason we were able to do it was because we were both part of the EU. There didn't need to be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic any longer. The security reasons were taken away by the Good Friday Agreement, so we could remove the concrete blocks, the guard posts and all the rest of it. And they didn't need to be replaced by custom checks because we were all in the single market and we're all in the customs union. So membership of the European Union uh, was absolutely fundamental to being able to reach the kind of agreement we reached in the Good Friday Agreement. 
And subsequent to reaching it, the EU was fundamental in ensuring its implementation by providing funding, uh, political support, and the underpinnings that made Northern Ireland into a more prosperous place following the agreement. And Katie, the constructive ambiguity of the Good Friday Agreement was that while it kept unions in constitutionally the United Kingdom, it also gave many nationalists many of the attributes of living in a united Ireland without the constitutional reality of that. How important has that been to the success, the the enduring achievement of the Good Friday Agreement until Brexit? You're right. Constructive ambiguity is really important in the Good Friday Agreement, um, and it's mainly in the way that it was sold. So essentially, the Good Friday Belfast Agreement could be sold to unionists as um, securing Northern Ireland's place in the UK Union for as long as there was a majority in Northern Ireland in favour of that, securing their right to have, of course, a British identity. And then for Irish nationalists, it was reassuring to them. It could be sold to them as making uh, putting down the fact that there could be a referendum on Irish unification in the future if a majority wanted to see that. Um, and also um, reassuring them of the validity of their nationalist aspirations and, of course, securing their Irish identity as well. And this um, is really um, made possible through the context of the European Union, which, um, as Jonathan said, has made such a difference um, in practical terms, minimising the significance of borders between member states, um, but also in terms of improving relationships between the two governments very fundamentally. And then on the ground, the recognition that British and Irish identities can be complementary. They don't have to be conflictual. We've seen this working out in the Good Friday Agreement and then indeed in identities that are held by individuals within Northern Ireland um, since the Good Friday Agreement, which very much sort of reflect various versions and strands of Britishness and Irishness. During the Brexit referendum campaign, the question of the Irish border, as far as I could see, played almost no part, certainly in England, Scotland and Wales, in the arguments raging over Britain's membership of the EU. Did they play, did the question of the border figure prominently in the debate in Northern Ireland? Uh, there were certainly many people, particularly those who had been involved in the peace process, who raised concerns around the possible implications of Brexit and Tony Blair, of course, and, and Bertie Ahern, um, the former Irish Taoiseach, they were, were absolutely explicit in that. Um, it was an issue that was not well understood. And also we should bear in mind the fact that at the time, even very prominent Leave campaigners were saying that the UK would not leave the single market or even the customs union. Uh, that meant that the possibility of the kind of hard Brexit that actually has come to pass wasn't necessarily considered um, and therefore the significance of the Irish border issue, not just as a symbolic um, concern, but also one that really has very fundamental practical importance, that wasn't really dealt with in a, a huge amount of detail. But I should say, I mean, it was definitely a live issue in the campaign and the debates here in a way that it certainly wasn't in Britain. Jonathan, what's clear to anybody who understands the first thing about the European Union was that in the event of Brexit, the European Union would seek to defend the integrity of the single market almost at any cost. And yet that doesn't seem to have punched through to public consciousness in the arguments that we, we were having about uh, Brexit in the run-up to the referendum. Is that a failure of political leadership? It's partly because the Brexiteers were very unclear about what sort of Brexit they were going for at that stage. They weren't making it clear that we'd leave the customs union and the single market. And the version of Brexit that was being promoted became 
harder and harder line as things went on. And you'll remember that Theresa May, to her credit, tried to uh, prevent the difficulties of putting a border in uh, to protect the single market by saying that the United Kingdom as a whole would remain in the customs union. She came up with this scheme deliberately to avoid the problem of borders. Uh, but sadly, that was voted down in the House of Commons and that possibility wasn't, wasn't there. So I don't think it's so surprising. I think the thing that was disingenuous, really, was the Brexiteers uh, pretended there was some technological answer to the border in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, when John Major and Tony Blair went to Belfast and Northern Ireland more generally to campaign against Brexit, uh, they pointed out the issue of the border. And the response from the Northern Ireland secretary at the time, Rosa Villiers, was to say, oh, don't worry, there's no need for a border. Technology will solve it. Well, that's just not true. Uh, there's nowhere in the world where you can replace a border with technology. A technology can help facilitate a border, but you can't replace a border. And that was the lie that was told to people, that somehow this wasn't an issue. And we had Boris Johnson saying it would be the same as the border between Camden and Islington. And frankly, anyone who's been to the Northern Ireland border notices that it's not Camden, Islington. Let's talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, because it's that now that uh, is threatening to break down. This was added to the withdrawal agreement that the United Kingdom or was attached to the, the withdrawal agreement the United Kingdom made with the European Union to get Brexit done, to use Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings' phrase. Remind us what the protocol provides for, Katie. Yes, so in order to um, avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland, which both the UK and EU wanted to do, um, and to recognise unique circumstances on the island of Ireland, um, they came up with this protocol. This, the one that um, they ended up with in the withdrawal agreement came after several versions of it. Um, and this one effectively avoids a hard border on the island of Ireland by moving the border for goods to the Irish Sea, because effectively... Northern Ireland continues to be in the EU single market for goods, which is a, which is a, a, a very unique um, way of trying to avoid the consequences of Brexit for, uh, for the Irish border, because you don't need to have those checks and controls on the Irish border anymore. And that was for reasons of practicality and pragmatism, as well as um, recognising um, concerns amongst people living in Ireland, Northern Ireland, around what a hard border might mean. So Northern Ireland is de facto in the single market for goods, which means that the checks and controls that are required between Britain and the EU are also required on movement of goods from Britain into Northern Ireland. And it covers also other important areas such as um, protection of rights uh, that are fundamental to the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. Um, and then a, a range of other, other issues um, such as a single electricity market. So it, it has a significant yeah. impact not least because Northern Ireland will continue to follow those EU rules, even as Britain diverges. And so effectively what we're seeing um, uh, is the working out of the UK government's decisions in relation to Brexit um, as having an effect now on relations um, or particularly movement of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. It, it's quite an extraordinary situation to be in. I want to ask you in a second how th that is being interpreted by the, un the unionist community. But first of all, Jonathan, even as he was signing that withdrawal agreement with the Northern Ireland Protocol, putting his signature on it, Boris Johnson was reassuring people in Northern Ireland that there would be no border in the Irish Sea. Now, either he was deliberately lying or perhaps more troublingly, he didn't actually understand what he just agreed to. How do you read that? 
I'm afraid I think it was the first. Um, Boris Johnson is no fool, uh, and he has got a long history of a rather tenuous relationship with the truth. So I fear what he was doing was deliberately misleading, hoping that by asserting it wasn't a border, he would avoid the problem. Now, again, as I said, the problem all the way along has been this disingenuousness. Initially, the Brexiteers said it wouldn't be a border on the island of Ireland because it would be solved by technology. Um, then in the negotiations to get to the withdrawal deal in time for his election, Boris Johnson suddenly threw overboard the idea of a border on the island of Ireland and opted instead for a border in the Irish Sea. This was something that Theresa May had said no British prime minister could agree because it would be splitting up the United Kingdom. And this is the point about Brexit. Brexit was always going to hurt someone's uh, rights, someone's um, uh, identity. Either you put it on the island of Ireland, in which case you're hurting the identity of nationalists and republicans who want to feel Irish, even though they live in Northern Ireland. If you put it in the Irish Sea, you hurt the identity of uh, unionists who want to be part of the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson opted to put the border in the Irish Sea. And he then tried to mislead unionists into saying there wouldn't really be a border there. They wouldn't really need to fill forms in. And I think that's why we're getting some of the outrage now. Initially in 2019, when this was signed, people sort of hummed and hard and said it was okay. Eileen Foster, the leader of the DUP, said it would be the best of both worlds for Northern Ireland. But from the beginning of this year, when it really began to come into effect, you had the practical effects on Northern Ireland in terms of items missing from supermarkets, missing from delicatessens, not being able to get plants at garden centres. So the practical effects of that border and also the identity effects. And that's why we've got trouble now, because this is all coming home to roost and people are seeing not only have they been um, separated from the rest of the United Kingdom by this trade border, but also they were lied to by the prime minister when he introduced it. Katie, what effect has this dawning realisation had on unionist politics in Northern Ireland? Is there now a sense among some that they've been betrayed by the United Kingdom government? Yes, I mean, the the Withdrawal Agreement Act um, was has long been described by unionists here in Northern Ireland as the Betrayal Act, um, not least because um, the very um, strong majority in favour of approving that withdrawal agreement, including the protocol, uh, went against DUP, Democratic Unionist Party opposition. Um, It was very vocal at the time. And um, certainly because this version of the protocol was particularly harsh in what it meant for uh, trade within the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland in a very distinct position, it certainly exacerbated unionist concerns. And I say exacerbated because those concerns have long existed. Um, unionism in Northern Ireland has never felt um, completely secure. Um, and uh, there are many reasons why unionists would feel anxious about the decisions that the UK government makes vis-a-vis Northern Ireland. Um, and to add to all of this, this um, very this sense of anxiety about the future and insecurity about the disruption caused by Brexit, etc. To add to all of that, the fact that um, they had been unionists and people in Northern Ireland had been uh, explicitly told by the British Prime Minister and by government ministers that there would be no Irish sea border, that there would be minimal impact. Um, to, to discover that that wasn't true, I mean, that really exacerbates the sense of... Um, uh, this being a critical moment now for unionism and a sign of a, a real test for the UK government. And in fact, wider UK commitment to Northern Ireland and its place in the union. Jonathan, can the Northern Ireland protocol be salvaged? Can it be made to work? Or is the British government already backtracking on it sufficiently 
to make its implementability unachievable? Not only can it be salvaged, it has to be salvaged because there really is no alternative uh, to the protocol. We've been looking for one for six years and no one has found one and I don't believe they're going to find one now. Uh, we can't have a border on the island of Ireland for the reasons that we've discussed. Uh, the alternative that some uh, hardline Brexiteers push of a border in the Celtic Sea, that you'd actually put one between uh, Ireland and the rest of the EU is just not acceptable. It's not going to be acceptable to Ireland and it's not going to be acceptable to the EU. So we're going to have to make the protocol work. And that, I think, should be the purpose of these negotiations. And it seems to me the EU have approached these negotiations in a very reasonable way. They've tried to find ways of um, introducing flexibility. They've probably been a bit nitpicking and a bit uh, bureaucratic in um, some of their approaches, but they're trying to find ways around it. So we have to have flexibility on both sides, on the side of the EU and the side of the UK. And David Frost, the British negotiator, has approached these negotiations in a pretty cack-handed way, to be honest. With a combination of threats and unilateral actions, they simply destroyed trust on the EU side. And he'll need trust. He needs trust not just from the Commission, but also from the EU member states like France, who will be most effective if we breach the single market in, in a dangerous way. So we have to make the, the protocol work. The two sides have to show flexibility and at least resolve the practical problems, although there's nothing we can do about the identity problems that underlie this. And when it comes to the protocol itself, implementing it, if the British, if the UK government uh, unilaterally breaches the terms of the protocol in a way that threatens the integrity of the single market, then we will see, won't we, the EU moving towards the punitive measures that are available to it under the withdrawal agreement. What are those measures? Should we get to that? Yes, so it's not just under the withdrawal agreement, but also under the trade and cooperation agreement now, of course. Um, there are means by which the EU and UK can hopefully resolve differences, but also then lead into um, rather more active um, aspects of dispute settlement or resolution, including taking certain steps um, to, if you like, sort of punish the other side, i.e. restricting certain amounts of trade, etc. Um, the interesting thing in relation to the protocol is that the European Court of Justice has certain element of jurisdiction over EU law still in relation to Northern Ireland. Um, and therefore, that sort of underlines the, the seriousness um, with which the EU has approached these matters. We know that the EU is already taking legal proceedings against the UK for uh, unilateral action in relation to extending the grace periods um, for the full implementation of the protocol. Um, so far, it's been cautious in progressing, i.e., you know, banning certain goods or whatever it might want to do ultimately, um, because it's recognizing the sensitivities around this particular matter. Um, but at this moment, the pressure is very much growing uh, on the EU side uh, from various member states, very frustrated. Um, at the same time, we're seeing pressure uh, and strain growing within Northern Ireland politics as well. And this is the, the this is a, the sadness of the situation in many ways, just as the British-Irish governmental relationship is fundamental to the peace process here. Now we're seeing the relationship between the UK and the EU having a really direct impact on um, the sense of stability in the political scene within Northern Ireland. So even if the Northern Ireland Protocol can be made to work, and as Jonathan says, it has to be made to work, it doesn't solve the problem with 
in the insecurities that are now felt in, in the identity politics of Northern Ireland. We've seen, we saw last month and the month before, a, a return to some kind of violence on the streets, uh, very disturbingly, whole new generations who weren't even born when the Good Friday Agreement was achieved, uh, being sucked, being drawn into violent acts. Are you worried, Katie, about the, the threat of a return to violence and the possibility of violence this summer as the marching season approaches? Yes, I think there's very much a sense across the community that this summer could be a very fractious one. And it doesn't take much for um, levels of sort of disturbance and sort of civil protest to end up with sort of violent scenes as we were seeing there in, in April. Um, and there is a risk of things getting out of control and always the, the, the police service of Northern Ireland is at the forefront of all of that. And, you know, nearly 100 police officers were injured during the April disturbances over the course of just a few days. So, yes, people are anxious and more anxious than we have been for a long time leading up to the marching season. And this is why, you know, we, we have there's a, such a need for political leadership here. Um, we've seen huge upheaval in unionism in Northern Ireland, not just in its relationship with the UK government, but also internally in the in the parties, um, an overhaul of the leadership of the two main unionist parties. Um, and they're charged with huge responsibility now in showing leadership and sort of reassurance to try and um, make sure that unionists and loyalists um, have confidence in the democratic system. Um, and the hope would be that we could see um, a level of responsibility being taken now by the UK and the EU side in making some progress in finding common ground um, in order to just defuse the situation here uh, and give a little bit of space to try and um, re restore um, calm. And Jonathan, what, what role do the Irish and British governments need to be playing in that? Well, they should be working together to find a, find a solution um, uh, and to help the EU to, to, to show flexibility. And I think it's a shame that the just when, as Katie says, the Irish and British government are needed, their relations are at the frostiest they've been for a long time, partly because of Brexit, but partly because of the deliberate attack by Brexiteers on the Irish government. I mean, for example, today in the Daily Telegraph, Simon Coveney has suggested a perfectly sensible solution to the practical problems or the vast majority of the practical problems in the protocol by saying that if we um, coordinated with the EU on our agricultural policy and SPS checks, um, then we would uh, solve nearly all of those problems. But of course, the British government is refusing to do that, not for practical reasons, because we don't have any prospect of an EU-US deal with its agricultural measures in the foreseeable future, but for doctrinaire reasons, they don't want to give up this. But if they did that, that would solve the practical problem. So that re um, relationship between Ireland and the British government, which was so important in getting to the Good Friday Agreement, implementing the Good Friday Agreement and keeping things together, uh, is really under threat. And there's a problem because the British government is not paying a lot of attention to Northern Ireland. We no longer have anyone in number 10 working on Northern Ireland. It's all delegated to the Northern Ireland office. And the problems in Ireland usually happen when Britain isn't paying attention, if we look back through our history. And I'm afraid at the moment we are not really paying sufficient attention uh, to the direction Northern Ireland's going to go. One of the themes that has emerged in the course of uh, recording these podcasts over the last six months or so is that there seems to be a cultural mindset in Whitehall and Westminster that fails to understand the nature of the United Kingdom as a union state and continues to be behave as though it's a kind of greater 
England. Uh, do you think that's fair? Yes, I do, really. I think this is a general problem and one that's going to need to be addressed. I think that the issue of um, the continuation of the United Kingdom is going to be the key political issue. Now, we've been dominated by Brexit for six years, by COVID for a year. And I think the next three or four years are going to be dominated by the issue of the United Kingdom. And I think if London and Westminster and Whitehall continue to focus on this in a little Englander type of way, and the problem is that the Conservative Party has become an English nationalist party. It's not really a unionist party, despite claiming so. And we know that because the polling of the Conservative Party members who voted for Boris Johnson, the whole uh, 100,000 of them from which he was chosen, uh, made it clear that they preferred getting Brexit to hanging on to Scotland and Northern Ireland. So there's a, a lack of interest, really, in Scotland and Northern Ireland that dominates the thinking. And I think if they carry on in that way, uh, there's a real danger that we will go down the road to Scottish independence, and we will also face the possibility, at least, of a united Ireland over that period. Well, I want to look now at the Northern Ireland's being, in a sense, suspended between two unions, the European Union and the United Kingdom. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement binds the United Kingdom government, as I understand it correctly, to agreeing to a border poll in certain circumstances. What are they? Well, the Northern Ireland Secretary uh, is required to uh, call a border poll if he believes there's a majority in favour of a united Ireland. Um, it's not very specific beyond that. Uh, and, of course, uh, a Northern Ireland Secretary can resist it, just in the way that uh, Boris Johnson has said there'll be no referendum in Scotland. Uh, Northern Ireland Secretary and a Conservative government could just keep ignoring polls that showed uh, a majority for a united Ireland. Uh, however, in the case of Northern Ireland, they wouldn't be able to do that very long because it would be justiciable. It's a, an international agreement. It's a legally binding agreement. And if he did that, he'd be taken to court. Uh, and I think the court would almost certainly decide in favour of, of having a border poll in those circumstances. So I think most people accept that, that if there was, I know, six months of opinion polls showing a significant lead, not sort of 1% lead, but a significant lead for a United Ireland, then uh, I think you'd have to have a border poll. Now, I should say there's no evidence uh, that's the case at the moment. But there is evidence of a change over time. The, one of the impacts of Brexit has been to reduce the quite large numbers of, of uh, Catholic uh, members of the population in Northern Ireland who used to favour a United Kingdom, remaining in a United Kingdom, and are shifting in the direction of a United Ireland because they can see the direction that Brexit's going. And if you think about it, if uh, this border between the uh, United Kingdom and uh, Northern Ireland grows, and it will if we diverge uh, in England from the... Um, regulations and customs uh, duties of, of the EU, uh, then people are going to realise their economic interests are more and more in Brussels. And to influence Brussels, they have to go through Dublin. And then you're going to find businessmen sort of thinking, well, maybe it is better to be in a United Ireland in these circumstances. As I say, I'm not saying this is imminent, I don't think. Uh, but when uh, in 1997, just immediately after he was elected Prime Minister, Tony Blair went to Balmoral, to an agricultural fair just outside Belfast, and he made a famous speech in which he said that he did not believe there would be a united Ireland in his lifetime. And I would have agreed with him then. I'm no longer of that view. I think things have changed. And I think the census, when its results are published after the Northern Ireland elections next year, will show probably a greater parity or possibly even a Catholic majority in Northern Ireland. And Katie, what's happening in opinion uh, in the unionist community? Is there any part of the unionist community now that is rethinking its historic opposition to Irish reunification? Yes, that's a, that's a good question. And um, the Northern Ireland Life and Times survey, which is 
the Northern Ireland equivalent of the British Social Attitude Survey, we've been able to ask questions around um, what people think the long-term policy of Northern Ireland should be, how they would vote if there was a referendum on unification held tomorrow, but also on the perceived impact of Brexit um, on their preferences in that matter, and also whether they think it makes United Ireland more likely. And steadily since 2017, we've seen a growing proportion of our respondents uh, saying that they think Brexit makes United Ireland more likely and also that they want to see it more. But where we see that change happening is predominantly, as Jonathan mentioned, amongst Catholic respondents and, and nationalist respondents. So in, essentially, it's sort of intensifying the sense of um, Irish identity, nationalist identity in that community. We haven't seen a great shift amongst Protestant respondents or unionist respondents, um, even unionist remainers. Um, there are very small proportions of them who have changed their mind in relation to the union. Those who are the, a very significant portion of the population in Northern Ireland is neither unionist nor nationalist. Uh, the majority of those were pro-Remain. And again, even though they're expecting them, they think a United Ireland is more likely as a result of Brexit, they don't necessarily, um, haven't necessarily shifted very significantly towards wanting it to happen. But we're in a very strange situation. I mean, that there's a sense of tremendous flux. Um, and every time I write up these research updates for Northern Nine Life and Time survey, I find myself saying, you know, this has been another year of, of extraordinary change and uncertainty. Um, and in many ways, sort of public opinion is more predictable than than the political environment um, at the moment. Um, and there is very much a sense of, yes, things are changing, but um, if anything is, if there's any lessons to be drawn from the past few years, it, it is quite how uh, unpredictable the situation can be and quite how um, much responsibility political leaders have to try and um, concentrate on the fundamentals in relation to the Good Friday Agreement, which is for the here and now, basically and about making sure that um, the democratic institutions work and that people can have confidence that they that they are operating effectively in the interests of all the community. And let me ask you about opinion in the Republic of Ireland. I did a public event a couple of years ago, and we were talking about this with Fintan O'Toole, the Irish Times journalist. And I asked him whether, whether he still favoured a united Ireland. And he said, well, it's a bit like St. Augustine, who prayed, oh, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Is that still... A, a fair characterization of the Republic's view of a united Ireland, because if we are moving in that direction, then there's an awful lot of work to be done by the Republic of Ireland to find ways of accommodating the unionist community in whatever lies ahead. What is the state of opinion in, in the Republic? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, they don't, uh, they haven't been asking many polls uh, in over the past few decades on Irish unification. It's not a it's not a matter that um, has had much prominence until Brexit. And so when we look at if there's sort of trends of um, public opinion change, it's quite difficult to in the South because they haven't had so many polls. But essentially, it's around three quarters saying that they're in favour of Irish unification. But they are. Um, and certainly, even in the course of the last year, there's an increased um expectancy around it that they think it's more likely to happen than they would have thought pre prior to Brexit. Um, but that fundamental question that you're you're noting there, I mean, I, I think there's still such a long way to go before recognising um, the 
significance of what Irish unification would mean in relation to the mechanics of it all, um, uh, let alone the policies around it and the constitutional change that would be required. Um, so it still seems very much a, a, a matter that's sort of an ideological one rather than a, a practical one at the moment. And this is why the Irish government set up its shared island unit to begin to think about the future of the island of Ireland, aside from questions of unity and more in relation to building good relations and connecting with the island. Jonathan, we've barely begun this conversation in terms of, but but surely if if we are moving in that general direction, it would the the prospect of a border poll would surely impose an enormous burden of responsibility on Dublin to show that an a united Ireland could be achieved without what would it have to demonstrate? What what preparations would it have to make to get ready for united for a united Ireland? This is what worries me a bit, is it is very hard for the Irish government to really think, work and plan about United Ireland, because to do so would immediately threaten the unionists, to make them look aggressive. So this Irish government has said it's not even going to discuss the issue of United Ireland. They're trying to make it clear to the unionists this book is closed as far as they're concerned. And for unionists, it's very hard to engage with the Irish government or anyone else to talk about United Ireland, because they'd immediately be accused of being a Lundy, of being a traitor. So they can't do it. And... So it's left to things like the Constitution Unit that did quite a good study of what the implications of United Ireland will be. And the problem, I think, is this, that um, you can have a border poll about United Ireland or not, but what does United Ireland actually mean? What happens to the Protestant population in those circumstances? Does Stormont go on within a United Ireland as a separate entity? Do we still have a separate Ulster inside a Republic of Ireland? Uh, how Say the, say the um, poll was 48, um, 52, like the EU referendum. What are you going to do with the 48% of people who don't want to be moved into United Ireland? How are you going to win them over to it? How are you going to protect their rights across Ireland? There are huge questions here. And just as John Major suggested a while back, I think that there should be two referendums on Scotland, one about whether or not you wanted independence and then what independence would actually mean in practice. Um, I think there's a similar problem in, in the case of Northern Ireland. I don't quite see how you have two border poles, but somehow this discussion of what a United Ireland actually means uh, now is, uh, is a very complicated one. Now, I don't think looking at the polls, it's an imminent question. It's not going to happen next month. Uh, but I think serious people need to start thinking seriously about how this could be made to happen with the least possible uh, disruption, violence, political crisis. And as Katie says, I think she points her finger at what the, the saving grace here may be, which is the growing middle ground in Northern Ireland. And I think, again, the census will probably show that it's more people not identifying as unionists or nationalists a Catholic or Protestant, the Alliance Party going up in terms of its numbers, uh, the DUP appearing to go down quite substantially in opinion polls at the moment, partly because it's losing votes to its right to the TUV, but also losing votes to, to the left, the moderate unionists joining the Alliance Party and the centre ground parties. So the, the saving grace to all of this may lie in that growing middle ground, which can slow things down, which can discuss things rationally and have a proper debate. At least that's what I'm hoping for. And that's where we'll leave it for this month. Thanks again to Jonathan Powell. His book, Great Hatred, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, is available still on the bookshelves. And to Professor Katie Hayward, look out for her forthcoming book, The Irish Border, out soon. And thanks to all of you for listening to Constitutionally Sound. See you next time. 